Welcome back to the Amateur Theatre Podcast, episode number 15. It's been a really interesting first month of the year. Loads of stuff has been going on that hopefully you'll find interesting. A lot of it should be hitting the, the feed or the website in the next few weeks. The one that should be landing soonest is uh, our first episode of The Script Club. And if you'd like to have a little bit of a deeper insight into the conversation that you'll be listening to, grab hold of a, a copy of the script. It's James Fritz's four minutes, 12 seconds. I was lucky enough to gather together three very smart, interesting people to join me in a conversation around the text. And although I'm hopeful that you'll get a lot out of it if, if you haven't read the play, you may find it uh, more enlightening if you've either seen it or, or have a copy to hand. So feel free to go out and grab one of those. It should be landing on the feed in the next couple of weeks, so you've got a bit of time to, to get hold of it and read it. As for today, we are talking to Kieran Donnelly. Kieran is an actor, director, and also teacher who has been working in and around amateur theatre and professional theatre for many, many years. Today's conversation focuses quite a lot on uh, Shakespeare. That's due to his expertise in that area. But we do obviously go off on a few different tangents, as normal, down several paths that hopefully will be interesting uh, for you to listen to. But there's a lot to learn and a lot to digest from this conversation. And although I continue to try and cut these down to under an hour or on the hour mark, once again, I failed to do so. And I do hope that none of what I've left in is kind of dead air and not useful. But do feedback if you want to. I know a number of you have, have got in contact, which is really great. So thanks for that. Otherwise, just sit back and enjoy. For me, acting is telling a story. That's the primary goal. So obviously understanding the story is a very important part of it. Then then I would look into the character. Where does my character fit into the story? Mm -hmm. What role do they play? Um, with Shakespeare, it's not always as simple as protagonists and antagonists, uh, especially with, with the comedies, you know, for example. Um, and and even like even ones where it seems a bit more clear cut, like Romeo and Juliet, for example. In my opinion, the antagonist is Romeo. Okay. You know, it's it's one of those sort of Breaking Bad esque ones where we're we're following the guy who's actually causing all the damage. Yeah. Um. And and other people are going to look at that very differently. They're going to have different perspectives. And you know, fortunately for me, when I did Romeo and Juliet, I was playing Tybalt, so it was very easy for me to see Romeo as the antagonist. And you have to appreciate that people are going to see it in different ways. I'm sure the guy who was playing Romeo didn't see it like that. Because, um, you know, as soon as you start playing yourself as the villain, you're, you're setting yourself up for, for hammy, two-dimensional, rubbish acting. Um, yeah, so understanding the play you know, what's trying to be, what the message is, what's so, trying to be. So how do, you, how do you understand the play? Wikipedia. Really, Wikipedia? No, I. Um, no, I think that that's. To be fair, that might be a, a not, the honest answer. Not, not necessarily Wikipedia, but if I'm if I'm doing a play, like an established one, like a, a Shakespeare play, uh, and it's not one I'm familiar with, 
then the first thing I'll do is I'll go and look up plot summaries. Um, I will, of course, you know, read the play or what I prefer to do is watch a version of it or, or like um, there are some really good audio books for things like Shakespeare's. Right. In terms of the, the initial penetration of the text. Yeah. You're, you're saying, and again, the, the half flippant remark about Wikipedia, but you're, you're seeking out an understanding of the overall piece from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. As in, again, just, I appreciate you're reading the play, right? Yeah. But I think there are people who will read the text and still not get what's going on. So I'm wondering, just again, like to say, just to labor that point, what those, those, that first hurdle and those barriers that you're going through, is it enough for you to have just read what happens in Wikipedia and watched the movie before reading it? Or do you, is there other stuff that you're having to do just to set it in your head before you begin to take it on? So just reading like a Wikipedia summary isn't isn't going to do that for you mm -hmm. that that's literally just something i will do so that i get a basic idea of what it is you know what characters are there are that i like or that i could potentially see myself playing okay um or if you know it's one where i've al already been cast you know if there have been occasions where i've been asked to come in and play a role rather than auditioning you know briefly seeing where i am in that and and sometimes it's useful like because still today, you know, the language isn't that easy for me. You know, it does take a few reads for me to really get it. Yeah. But at least having that summary in my mind, I can say, oh, well, at least at least I know what's generally happening in this scene at this moment. Um, the thing you got to keep in mind with Shakespeare as well is he wrote his plays 300 years before Stanislavski was born. And, you know, that was the moment where theater started to become an imitation of real life. Right. You know, when Shakespeare wrote his plays, um, it was still very big and over the top in terms of performance. You didn't have conventions like we do today where the audience sits in silence yeah, while was, watching. Yeah. Um, it was it was a very, very different forum. And I think one of the reasons why Shakespeare survived so well is because his plays have managed to change with how theatre has changed. Mm -hmm. uh, not all writers of his time did the same but at the same time sometimes you are going to look you are going to question things that Shakespeare himself might not have questioned you mean about around his text you mean yeah yeah okay. yeah uh and that doesn't that doesn't mean that you know you can abandon those principles because they're very important for actors and I honestly think I think I think you'd be very lucky if you could get away with performing his plays the way they were performed back then without it essentially being a gimmick. Um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I would agree with that. In terms yeah. of the, 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 yeah, well, not least because the audience is just not prepared. They're not, they're not, yeah. Like, um, before a rehearsal, like if we're rehearsing a scene for the first time, um, before I go in there, I'll spend however long I need to doing some anal analysis on the text. And then after the rehearsal, I'll do that same analysis again, taking into account what happened in the rehearsal, like the interactions I had with the other characters, because mm -hmm. they're never going to play it the way that I imagined it in my head. Um, but Shakespeare's actors didn't have that opportunity. Like famously, like many of his plays, he'd, he'd add new scenes while there was a performance going on. <laughs> and you'd have someone whispering the lines off stage to the actors 
So they were performing them seconds after they'd heard them. So they, they can't really go and like look at their actions or their motivations when they're literally doing a scene for the first time in front of an audience. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't mean we can't, you know, that we can get lazy with that sort of stuff. I, I more than, more often than not, I feel like the balance is not being struck very well. That we now, we being modern practitioners of whatever theatre, we dive so deep it's unreal. We we fall out the bottom, and so much stuff, especially about Shakespeare, is like you know every time I take a Shakespeare play on, and I begin my kind of analysis and my my process of trying to come up with, with an original concept. I mean. It's unreal how much literature and how much stuff there is out there that that is telling me how it should be performed and who should be doing what and how and what relationships existed and why and ah oh, it's yeah I teach drama as well and I do I do teach Shakespeare uh my first rule it's English okay if you if you look at Shakespeare like it's a foreign language your brain will shut down after the first line. Right. It'll it'll just say, I don't understand this. So first thing I'll do is, um, uh, so when I'm teaching, I have I have a few sonnets that I like using because uh, they're good examples of some of the stuff Shakespeare did. Uh, first thing I'll do is I'll go through that and I'll find the lines that make sense. Okay. The ones that work in a contemporary setting. Right. I mean, you got to keep in mind, like Shakespeare probably made less sense back then because he invented like 1700 words uh, that we still use today. So he probably actually makes more sense today. Um, then look, look up the words that don't right. make sense, the words that we don't use today. Mm -hmm. uh, and then look for like the idioms, things like that. Because... Um, uh, one of the sonnets I, I really like using, there's a, a particular idiom in that. Uh, what is it? Um, and like unlettered clerks still cry amen to every hymn that able spirits affords. Uh, it goes on, obviously. It's a whole sonnet. <laughs> but when I read that, I was like, I got no idea what this means. So first I look up unlettered. just means illiterate, without letters. Um and then I had to go and actually do some research into it. And it was um, it was this idea that back then, many illiterate people, when they're in church, they're pretending to read along. And so when the, the priest, the vicar, whomever, says amen, they cry out amen as quickly and as loudly as they can, as if to say, amen, yep, I can read. I was definitely reading along because I knew I had to say amen then. Yep, yep, that was me. And then... And then suddenly that idiom makes sense within the context of the rest of the sonnet. Uh, so it does, it does take research. Like I, I can't remember the last time I picked up a Shakespeare play, read a character and automatically understood everything yeah. that I was saying. Yeah. You know, it does, it does take work. It takes research and you have to be willing to put that work in. I, uh, one of the first plays I did Shakespeare plays, it was actually the first time I did much do about nothing I've done it like three times now. <laughs> Love that play. Um, one of the uh, one of the actors came off stage. I think they were playing Verges, and uh, they and Dogbury had just done their first scene on the first performance, and they've got a massive laugh because you know it's Dogbury and Verges. They're hilarious, and they came off stage and just said, "Wow, I didn't realize that bit was funny." And the rest of us were like, what, 
yeah, it's a joke. And it was so clear that they just, they'd learned the lines. They'd said them in a bit of a, a flowery accent and thought this is good enough. And then they suddenly became aware of the fact they were playing the comic relief. Uh, so I never wanted to be in that situation. Yeah. I, I mean, I love that feeling you get when you when you perform a comedy for the first time and you remember that a bit is funny. You know, a bit that you've rehearsed so many times just in front of the cast. They don't find it funny anymore. And then you do it in front of an audience and you just get that feeling of, oh, yeah, this bit's funny. Yeah, I remember now. But that's remembering, not suddenly it occurring to you and be like, oh, cool, this is a joke. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, ever since then, I was like, I'm never going to be that person. I'm going to understand every single word I say. If a director calls me out on something, I want to know that line better than they do. Yeah, okay. Uh, and in terms of, again, I'm, I'm, I'm in my head, I'm reiterating the things you're saying about understanding the Shakespeare play that we're, the mythical Shakespeare play we're talking about, what, in terms of like, not just the meaning, so what, you know, you, you perfectly described kind of part of my process as well, which is going through and finding the sections I don't understand, the specific words I don't understand, but there's a difference then between being able to read through and not be confused mm -hmm. and understand the connotations of what you're saying and again, feeding off what you said about Dogbury and Verges, how the 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 impetus to drive that scene forward comes through in how it's written so how then are you kind of understanding or i keep using the word digesting but whatever the word is to try and then make sure that it's not just about reading the text and understanding what you're reading you're actually delivering a nuanced character that's fed from the rhythms of the play that you're reading so for this, uh, I know I said that, you know, Shakespeare was around way before this. I, I do really like employing the works of Stanislavski. Um, so the first, the first thing I'll do with a character is I'll figure out their super objective, okay. what they want to achieve by the end of the play. Uh, and, and obviously sometimes your character doesn't achieve that. It, it'd be impossible uh, for every character to. But uh, it, it's still the goal. So then with that in mind, you, you look at each individual scene and you need to figure out what the objective is within that scene and how that plays in towards your super objective. Mm -hmm. So now I've got an idea of what my character wants overall and what my character needs in each scene to achieve that. Then you look at the lines and you have to look at each line as if this is one of my tactics. This is something that I'm doing specifically to get that objective. So in that sense, you then you then go on to his work on actions. You slap a transitive verb on every single line, which basically took up about half of my first year at drama school, literally being given a script and told to literally write a transitive verb over every single sentence. And it was torture. I've got a, I've got a book upstairs somewhere that is literally just a, a dictionary. I've got one as well. Of, yeah. Of, um, yeah. Um, it's a great little book, but I hate it. Yeah, a thesaurus of all the words that you can possibly use. Yeah, every yeah. single transitive verb. Yeah. <laughs> and so from that, you you then look at your relationships with, with the other characters. Some characters are going to be useful to you. They're going to be tools that can help you towards that. So, I mean, if we look at the last show you and I did together with, um, with Twelfth Night, 
a while back now. Mm. Uh, obviously, I had I had certain characters like Mariah who were helpful to me. Um, I had ones that I wanted to be helpful, but ended up being more of a hindrance, like Sir Andrew. And then ones that are, are straight up um, obstacles, like Marvolio. Uh, so, you know, Sir Toby, Sir Toby is a great character from that point of view, because he literally, you know, goes seek and destroy on, on his obstacle. He yeah. decides he's going to ruin Malvolio and he makes use of Mariah, which, you know, from the summary alone, just reading the summary, you can say, okay, this is a character who is helpful to me. Mm-hmm. This is a beneficial character to me. So all the lines that I have directed to her are going to, are going to feature very different transitive verbs than the ones that I might use for Sir Andrew, for okay. example. Yeah, that's nice. Um, someone like Mariah, I, I may try to entice her. I may try to seduce her, bring her over to the dark side kind of thing. Whereas um, someone like Malvolio, I'm just, I'm just trying to antagonize him as much as possible. Uh, I'm trying to make him the villain in my head to justify my own actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so once you've got that idea of how the characters fit into your objectives, then you can decide how you want to play the lines towards them. And then you go into the first rehearsal, you do the scene, you see that every single actor is playing the role differently to how you imagined it. And then you go straight back to square one and you start this whole process over again. (laughs) Okay. And uh, again, I'm going to step back in a second, but just on that very point, how much of your, how much do you try and influence others based on the work you've just described doing? Because it, it, it no, it's a good question. Uh, the honest answer is it depends. Okay. Because I'm a very firm believer both, both when I'm acting and directing of the term "Don't be afraid to kill your baby." Yeah. Uh, and I've worked with people who really are not okay with that, who get very set in their ways and they're very difficult to work with, uh, to the point where like I've employed tricks when I'm holding auditions to make sure I'm not working with people like that. Uh, so if, if there's something I am really set on and I think that my idea for it is genuinely the best way to go, Mm -hmm then I will try to push it. Right. But only if I think it benefits the story overall, because that's what I have to keep coming back to. It's that question. Am I telling the story? Right. And it always has to come back to that. If, uh, if the actor I'm working with has a better vision of how to do that particular bit, then I'll go with it. Right. I mean, at the very least, I'll try it out to see if it works. And what, what would you constitute as a better version of it? So it could be something like, uh, it could be something that fits the director's overall vision better. Uh, it could be something that um, helps expand upon either of the characters better. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of characters, especially within Shakespeare, that are just there as plot devices and don't get much character development at all. So if there's an opportunity to allow that, yeah, great. You know? Um, Amber and I actually had like a few conversations during Twelfth Night about the the relationship between her character and mine. Okay. Because 
because her character was very much one of those sort of this person's just showed up so that we can squeeze one person one more person into this tiny tiny box tree thing whatever mad creation that was uh mad beautiful creation yeah but just by having a little conversation about like how our characters knew each other um that then allowed both of us to to improve upon our characters yeah okay so at what point are you kind of happy to enter a rehearsal room and begin presenting that to others and it okay i know this much about this character and i'm happy to enter the room and start presenting ideas or i'm not happy i'm gonna stay quiet for a bit and see what others do and then i'll push back it's it's down to circumstances a lot i think um like i'll give you a couple examples of like the two sides of it so um the first time i did much ado it was with the guild Mm-hmm. And we got we got our castings a month and a half before we started rehearsals. Not entirely sure why, but hey Um I decided that I wanted to try and be off book. Mm-hmm. It was my first like proper lead role in a Shakespeare play. It's the first one I'd done since drama school. It was my favorite role. It was uh, the audition speech I used to get into drama school as well. So it was a big deal for me. And I didn't want to mess it up on day one in the read-through by, you know, fumbling my way through it. So I basically, I, I, I got off book. I then pretended that I wasn't off book because no one else was. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't want to be the class SWAT. Um, the, uh, the guy's... To be clear, I was I was playing Benedict, uh, and the guys who were playing Claudio and Don Pedro, as it just happened, were like they worked near me at the time and happened to finish around the same time. So we started hanging out, and by the time we got to rehearsals, we were like best mates. You know, up until recently, I, I lived with one of the guys, and so that was like it wasn't an intentional bit of character work but it was it was really great and it it showed in the production as well but i had this month and a half and i was really excited about it and i did do as much work as possible i i genuinely think like if if we had of like just gone through the blocking on day 1 i would have been ready to perform on day 2 like i went i went so over the top with this one but then i've had i've had other shows where I've kind of been called in like the last minute. Someone said to me, look, Kieran, we we need someone to play this role. Rehearsal start tomorrow. Are you up for it? And I'm like, yeah, go on. Why not? And so I basically show up the next day having having read the play, having read the part, mm-hmm. uh, familiarize myself with the lines enough so that my dyslexia is not an issue, but then literally not have the time to do that level of character work. And so I've been doing it as I go through the process. So when it when it comes to rehearsals, rehearsals is part of the process. Yeah. I don't I don't see it as an end goal. It's not one of those things where I have to get all this done before rehearsals start, because rehearsals is part of that same process for yeah. me. Is that is there having done the two extremes? Is there a balance that feels, you know, is too much work prior to rehearsals detrimental to the character that finally comes out? because you're having to challenge so much of what you've put in place and is doing no work 
before rehearsal start detrimental because you're just going to be pushed around by the director or other actors to you know in the first few weeks of doing these rehearsals you're not you've not got an argument against what they're saying so once stuff starts sticking to the wall it's really tricky to peel it off again and say hold on a second i've had this thought about my character and they're like yeah but remember two weeks ago when we did the blocking and we did this and you know so it, it really comes back down to that awful phrase of don't be afraid to kill your babies right with the former um if you go in having done all this work and refuse to give up any of what you've done you're going to be awful to work with you are and you're going to find like like i said you know i've gone into a rehearsal space and every other cast member has played their role differently to how i expected and suddenly the decisions i made don't always make sense anymore yeah and and that stands out in a show and not in a good way so you have to be willing to do that and with you know with the the second one you mentioned um a lot depends on the director you're working with. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I've enjoyed about working with you is that you're happy for actors to make changes right up to. Well, actually, yeah, we we changed not, all my. I blocking, know what you're going to say, but not all happy, my blocking not in the happy. tempest <laughs> on the second performance. <laughs> Look, there are some things that just need to be changed. Right? Uh, but that's that's great because that that freedom allows actors to experiment. There is an element of too much freedom. I'm learning very, to my, to my, I want to use the word chagrin, but I have to check what that means later on, but to my own pain, that to be too free and allow too much, um, for it to be too loose for too long is, is also detrimental. It, it, that you cause yourself a lot of pain if you're not prepared to make decisions at some point. Yeah. And I, I say that, knowing that I make decisions, but I also have historically and probably will in the future allow stuff to drift too much as well. Mm-hmm. So there's, there is a intrinsic pain to both processes, I believe. Like being really rigid, I gr- totally agree with you. It, it just stifles the creativity of the probably the best tool that you've got in the actors, or even not even a tool, the, the collaborators you've brought on to bring the place, the, the piece to life if you're too rigid and too strict on your blocking or the characterization of each of those parts, you're going to end up with, as you say, a bunch of puppets that are waiting to be moved around the stage. If in the reverse you give the guys too much freedom, you could end up with a play that is 15 different characters portraying 15 different types of play and your vision is shot to shit because you haven't coalesced their thoughts into the central vision and driven it forwards. So I guess we'll come back to that when we talk maybe about your directing style and the stuff you've directed. Okay, so we're we're you're in the room, right? You've got you've got you've been cast, you've reached rehearsals, you're you've done the work you've described, you've begun the process of constructing partnerships with the people that have been cast opposite you. How how does this unfold for you as an actor over the timeline of three months? What what is the process through which you see the the play being built um and i'll i'll kick you off with the start of a 10 just so you get an idea of what i'm saying like uh do you want to be doing the blocking day one or are you looking to have conversations for the first three weeks about the context of the play or the characters or are you looking to do a mix of those or do you want to get it on its feet or do you do you not want you know, you you much prefer to have a book in hand and just stand on the stage and just 
feel it out and slowly walk that way because that feels natural but actually you know you kind of get what i'm saying like yeah yeah i do um so i think i think the ideal sort of rehearsal process for me is we we go in day one assuming we've already done the read through mm-hmm. um just, just on the read through sorry are you someone mentioned a couple of um interviews ago that they like to have the read through be delivered with as much enthusiasm and character that people have already thought about mm-hmm. and i i was kind of not shocked but i was surprised by that because every read through i've done is has in my head always been a let's just make sure everyone has read the full play has read their parts and has listened to other people read their parts and understands the play not as a vehicle to begin to map on character mm-hmm. how do you feel about that read through process and kind of what what are you going in expecting uh i i like a combination of the two it it depends on whether i'm acting or directing okay um so as an actor i will i will i will try things out and I'll, to be honest i'll probably try things out that i know aren't going to work okay uh well in the I, case that one might work and you like it or just to get them out in the air open because they're there in your head so yeah i've always been very confident in the rehearsal space i think a lot of that comes down to the fact that i am professionally trained and i know i know what i'm doing mm-hmm. um and i've worked with a lot of people who don't have that until maybe halfway through the process when they get comfortable with everyone when they see that it's a safe environment what sorry and again i'm terrible at interrupting but just on that point and i've uh, again i we will have to revisit it but just really quickly is that because you know i know you've already talked about like things like stanislavski and, and theory and and um we will i will ask you later on about kind of drama school and what it gave you but are you saying that your ability to be vulnerable or flexible or what is it that that's that thing that takes others a few weeks or a month or so to get that you're going in with so what is it what how are you hitting the ground running while others are sort of it's for me it's an understanding of what confidence is confidence is just belief in your own abilities okay and that is something that some people have naturally mm-hmm but it can it can be gained so you know let's say you're going into the rehearsal space what what do you need what has been what has been told to you do you need to be off book nope okay take that off don't need to have my lines learned but in my case because of my dyslexia i need to at least be familiar with my lines mm-hmm. so i'll make sure that i am that's one thing to tick off it's one thing i don't have to worry about um would you would you i know your dyslexia um is feeding that desire to do that. Would you say it's beneficial, generally? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I actually think dyslexia has made me a better actor. Right. Because it's. it's and I don't mean dyslexia is beneficial. I mean, <laughs> I mean, the 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 notions that it's forcing you to do certain things. Well, yeah. I mean, in this case, I think it actually is beneficial because I, and I'll come on to this when, when we do talk about drama school. One of my biggest problems has always been self discipline. Okay. And drama school helped me a lot with that. Right. But also having dyslexia, knowing that if I go into a rehearsal space, having not read the script yet, I am going to suck. Right. And I am going to get stressed and anxious because of it. 
right there, my confidence is absolutely gone. Okay. So because I have that dyslexia, I have to force myself to at least at least be able to look away from the book to know it that well. Uh, and being able to go into a rehearsal on day one, whether you have dyslexia or not, and know the lines that well has to be a good thing. So why doesn't everyone do it? Because they don't have to. Okay. Like I said, discipline for me is a problem. If I didn't have dyslexia, I probably wouldn't. If I could, if I could read a Shakespeare play out loud with no problems, then I probably wouldn't show up for the first rehearsal knowing half my lines already. Even knowing it's beneficial, just because your dis- <laughs> discipline shot to shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> no, no, so, it's really interesting because I, I, and we haven't discussed this, but you've listened to a few podcasts. The idea of this is to provide people who are listening with tools that they can implement, especially amateurs who may not have gone to drama school and learn specific techniques to do certain things or have a lack of experience. I haven't done 30 shows, even in the amateur world, mm-hmm. where over 30 shows, you begin to work out a process that works best for you, works best for directors, works best for the for the creation of a good play. I'm just really interested in the, the statement you make about learning lines before you go in would seem to be beneficial for people if that if you're saying, as an actor who's done a lot of work um, in the amateur world, a professional world, who's trained, who's taught, you're saying that that is a, is a sensible thing to do, and yet you're also saying, <laughs> I wouldn't fucking do it. As I'm not criticizing you. There's not, no, it's, it's uh, literally just trying to get an understanding so those anyone who is listening can go, should I or shouldn't I? Should I be, should I be doing that? A lot, a lot depends as well on the way that you learn lines. Okay. So like, I know some people who... Um, when they're thinking back to their lines, they will actually picture them in the script. Like, they will be able to tell you that this three-line bit is halfway down the page Page. on the left side kind of thing. And they'll imagine it in their head like that. Then there are others who... uh, And I I was like this for a long time um, before I went to drama school, where I would remember a line based on where I'm stood on stage. Okay. So getting yeah, the blocking a, would help with I that. I hear a lot of that. Yeah, people yeah. people really... And if you change the blocking, it fucks them because they're like, yeah. hold on a second. It absolutely messes them up because yeah. they just... They suddenly don't know what line they're going to be reading because they're on the other side of the stage juggling grapes. But someone like that, they can try. They can put in the same amount of effort, but they will really struggle to learn their lines before they've done that first rehearsal. Just because their process is to have it mapped against a blocking... Yeah, because set. that's how they remember it. They remember where they were, oh, okay. who they were looking at when they said it. Right, okay. So they, so they may well... Okay, so they may well put the effort in to learn the lines, but actually, in terms of actually having them yeah. in their heads, it's still they still have to go through the process anyway, to the point at which the blocking is mapped against the words. Yeah, it's just the way they remember it, the way okay. they retain it. Right, okay. Now, hopefully, by the time you get to the performance, the lines are so sunk in that you're not having to think about them. You're not having those thoughts oh. of, I'm stood here when I say this, or this is this yeah. bit of that. I, I think we can both agree that if you're getting to the yeah any runs or any sort of previews, or even the show and your lines are not so embedded in your brain that you're able to reel them off and whatever, something's gone wrong. Yeah. But I, I guess I'm 
it's interesting that about that blocking thing and again i'm sure you're going to just carry on a second i interrupted you but it's quite interesting that as a director you may set a date in the diary of we're off book guys but you may well have only done well you may well have covered the majority of the scenes at least once or whatever but mm -hmm. you may not have cemented the blocking for half of a character yeah and so that might be quite tricky for someone who's reliant on knowing where they stand and who they're facing to deliver specific lines. But that sounds like a them problem. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like Kieran director talking, not Kieran actor talking. <laughs> if you, if, no, no, no. I will actually say that is very much Kieran actor talking. Okay. Because um, especially when I've played roles where like, I mean, Sir Toby has the most lines in Twelfth Night. Mm-hmm. It's not a huge amount. Like, I've definitely played bigger roles. No one has a huge amount in that play. But um, I, it's it's one of the, the frustrating things sometimes with doing amateur and, and knowing that for many people it's a hobby is that if if we're there like two weeks after the deadline to be off book and I've been off book for the last two months and there's someone with a quarter the number of lines as me who, who still needs the book who still like not just wants it but needs the book yeah that is infuriating i find it quite insulting yeah you know um and it's not it's not a case of you know why couldn't you put in the same amount of work i did because i only i will only feel that way with characters who you know i could learn their lines in an afternoon sort of thing and you do get that you get people who think oh it's only a little role i can i, I could learn it on the day of the first show and it'll be fine because, I mean, for me, like going back to what, what we said about how people picture the lines in their head, you shouldn't be at that point during the performance. No. If, I, if you're on stage and you're having to think about what your next line is, rather than listening to what the character speaking now is saying, you don't know your lines. Yeah, I agree. I agree. With that. Even, even, yeah. I mean, there's knowing your lines. Mm -hmm. And as you say, knowing your character, I, for want of a better phrase. And by knowing your character, the lines are in you. And therefore, your response is not just to Johnny saying this line. It's a response to it's the response is given from you knowing that your character and Johnny have had a ten years of battles prior to the play starting, and he is now trying to get something out of you that you don't want him to get out of you. And the line that he's delivered directly, you know, attacks you as a person, and therefore your response is based on this. It's that there's so much more to be delivered than just mm -hmm. your knowing your next line. Yeah. So, and the thing as well with that is, um, I, I, and this does happen a lot, is an actor may, during a performance, decide to completely change the way they deliver a line. It could be intentional, it could be unintentional, you know, mistakes happen, that sort of thing. But if your only thought process in that moment is, this is my next line, this is how I say it, you're not fully taking on board what they've just done. And that will make it stick out to the audience in such an awful way. Yeah. Okay, I agree with that, definitely. Um, we're at the early stages of rehearsals. You've got a whole group of people that are have different experience, have come from different backgrounds, have come to theatre at different times in their lives, and they will bring their own experiences and their own fears and pressures but also their own kind of um ability to to 
create what how how do you dissect groups like that maybe with your director hat on mm-hmm. how how are you looking at that rehearsal room and saying like how are we treating them what is your how how do you treat such a diverse bunch of people mm-hmm. in the early stages of a rehearsal when you've got so many different emotions and so many different ideas and desires in a room i find it's easier as a director to deal with that kind of thing mm-hmm. oh yeah i'm not saying the um, responsibility is is on the other actors I, oh no but i think i think it is okay i think it is because like i said earlier you know acting is telling a story and you have to keep asking yourself as the actor am i doing everything i can to tell the story mm-hmm. the best way that i can okay and if you're working with an actor who is struggling and you are in a position to help them and you don't you're you're affecting the story in a negative way okay because if you have the ability to you know make their performance better or even make them feel more comfortable mm-hmm. which will therefore make the performance better yeah you know that that is your responsibility if, okay. if you're wanting to make the play as good as it can be yeah you do potentially run into the issue of helping a how do i phrase this uh, just in in you saying that my initial response was yes definitely you should be assisting those who seem like they might need more help mm-hmm. but at what point does is that detrimental in that you're you become their guiding light or that you become the secondary to the director yeah see this or supersede the director because they start start looking to you for this is this is one of the reasons why it's easier to do this as a director cuz you know one of one of the things i have whenever i go into a rehearsal space is i'm not just an actor i have directed i have been teaching for over 10 years um i mean I, an example i can give one of the shows we did a while back um i could see that a particular actor was struggling with their projection um they were struggling to be heard but not only that i could see that they were pushing themselves the wrong way and pushing themselves in such a way that i knew through my experience meant they were going to lose their voice right okay um or at the very least by the end of the run they were going to be struggling Mm -hmm. uh and it's it's difficult as an actor to go and approach that because as a member of the cast you in order to make everyone comfortable you want to be one of their peers. Mm-hmm. You don't want to try to supersede the director, as you put it. Uh, and, you know, I, I do sometimes feel as though, you know, I could, there are moments I could go up to an actor and say, hey, just try this. And I know it would help. But I know that there would be a part of them that might respond with, bugger off, Kieran. Yeah. You're not the director. Don't mm-hmm. tell me what to do. Um, because in that moment, they see me as Kieran, the, the actor. Yeah, Kieran, their peer, not Kieran, the guy who's been teaching this stuff for over a decade. Yeah. Um, so as a director, it's much easier because as a director, you can just go in and say, "Try it this way," because that's your job. That's yeah. the relationship you formed from from the auditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's definitely easier from that point of view. I think as a director, for me, my first responsibility is to make myself as approachable as possible. Yeah, like I, I will try to befriend as many members of my cast as possible. Uh, first of all, it makes it more fun to work with them. 
you know, and I want to be enjoying myself. And and if you do an Amdram, it's not like they're getting paid. They you want them to get enjoyment out of it. Yeah. But also if you're if you're very standoffish, if you're a director that, you know, rules with an iron fist, they're gonna be afraid to ask you questions. Yeah. For fear of looking stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh and they're gonna be afraid to experiment. Yeah. Um, I I love it when one of my actors comes into the rehearsal space and just suddenly starts playing their character in a completely different way to the way they've done it before. Sometimes it's awful. Yeah. It sometimes it really is, but just knowing that they feel comfortable enough to try something different means that they're gonna they're gonna keep trying different things and they're gonna land on something that you like eventually. Yeah. Okay. So that. I feel would certainly help with your terrified 17 year old, Mm -hmm. you know, if, if you're the approachable one there. Yeah. Uh, this idea that a director has to be a dictator, it doesn't work for me. No, me neither. I think I agree with that. What, what in terms of that, maybe then now expressly with your director hat on creating that, dynamic that space where they feel comfortable enough to try the stuff you just said um but also have it so that they're bonding because i agree with you that mm-hmm. a cast that that um gets on and enjoys each other's company or at least has a um a joint desire for the other person to do well means that the whole production can move forward at a pace and and discover new stuff because there's no one looking over their shoulder, constantly thinking, "Oh, is that guy going to laugh at me? Are they going to not like that?" How, how, what tools or tricks or tactics do you employ as a director to to try and create that space early on? So we're talking, you know, first few weeks. And again, I always clarify this. I don't know why I continue to do it, but amateur theatre, three months, maybe two to three yeah. rehearsals a week. We're not talking. You've got four weeks to put on the play, and we're, you know. First week, we're in eight hours a day and we're doing this. We're talking spread across that kind mm-hmm. of period. Uh, so the first step I'll take with that comes from how I cast the show. Okay. Whenever whenever I've cast shows before, um, I've always tried to go for uh, a combination of at least three different types of actor. Um, I'll always try and have at least one person who I guess I would call the ringer Mm-hmm. That person who either is or could be a professional actor. Right. Uh, and there are plenty of them in Oxford. Uh, I will have people that I have worked with before, you know, people that I can rely on. And uh, of course, I'll go for, for people that I've not worked with before whenever possible. Um, but I also have at least one person. Uh, and I, to be honest, I have this person because I tend to fill this role myself when I'm acting. Mm hmm. Uh, that I I like to refer to as uh, the dickhead. Um, This (laughs) this is someone who will go into rehearsals, who will mess around, but will get serious when you need them to. Mm -hmm. Um, It needs to be someone that you can rely on enough that they'll get the job done. Because they'll go into those early rehearsals and, you know, they'll start a banter with the members of the cast and crew that they know yeah they will mess around they will try out funny voices and stuff like that and essentially make and also integrate with the newbies yeah in a way that maybe the little group the clique that exists might not yeah yeah and they will they will make a dick of themselves 
Mm -hmm. And they will face no repercussions for it. They will not be laughed at to the point where they run out of the room crying. They will not get yelled at by the director. And that will show anyone there who is nervous, who is who is too afraid to open up themselves, that this isn't that kind of environment. This isn't right. this isn't the environment where I'm going to get told off if I do something the director doesn't like. Right. Um, Can I just yeah. ask, do, does where does that fit in the hierarchy of selecting people for roles? Because I can understand how people fulfilling those different groups that you just, the three different groups you just laid out, especially the, the, the last one, what, but there's obviously more important things, or maybe there isn't, maybe this is the question mm -hmm. where you, you know, you need people for specific roles. You need actors who can fulfill certain um, jobs within the characters that they're cast in which may not map onto what you've just described. It again it it really for me it comes back to telling the story. You know, I'm going to cast the people who I think are best for the roles. Right. I have on occasion And what well, and just hope they fall into those brackets or some fall into some of those brackets that you laid out. Yeah, yeah. Some, um you know, sometimes some you ringers, can, some newbies, some oldies yeah. and I mean, the oldies obviously are the easiest ones because in most cases I'll already have a role picked out for them. Yeah. What I tend to try to do with them is I'll try to have multiple roles picked out for them. Right. So if someone new comes along and I think is better suited to one of those roles, I can give it to the newbie, right. but still have a role in mind for, for the returning one. Um, you know, if I could fill an entire show with ringers, I would. That'd be great. You say that. Sometimes the ringer brings with them Some... A, the knowledge that they're the ringer, but B, the... Oh God, I can't, other... I can't stand that. Well, no, and also the diva, like, you know, the number of ringers that I've seen throughout the 10, 15 years I've been directing, sometimes getting a ringer also brings with it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I, I absolutely stuff. get that. Uh, yeah, so I'm just saying a cast full of ringers might be difficult to deal with. Um, okay, so is there, is there, so I, I get that, right? I, I like... I like the framing of that with the cast and, and the people you're choosing. I like the idea that you as a director are making sure you're approachable and uh, you're allowing the space to be um, free for people to try stuff and do stuff. But what are you doing other than having that, that individual that you highlighted play up, if that makes sense? Mm -hmm. How else are you facilitating like just the creating a space that's open for trial and error i mean are you doing like, i games are you doing yeah yeah um so i bring my teaching style into my directing a lot and my directing into my teaching style so i tend to approach my rehearsals um with the idea that no one there is the perfect actor mm -hmm. you know i don't see myself as the perfect actor i don't i'm i'm one of these awful types who I don't think I've ever delivered a role to the best I possibly could. Mm -hmm. uh, and that keeps driving me. And that's good. That is a good thing. Not for my mental health, but it's a good thing for my acting. So I will have an educational element to rehearsals. Whenever, whenever I want to change something that an actor is doing, I won't just say, okay, I want you to stand over here and say it like this. I will approach it as I would as a teacher. So 
I'll try and make it a teachable moment. I'll try and make it so that every member of the cast who's in the room at the time is learning something from that as well. Okay. With with the idea being of making it very clear to everyone that this is um this is not a performance space. The performance space is the stage that we're going to go to in 3 months. This is a space for learning, this is a space for trying things. Uh importantly like, you know, I can't stress this enough, it is a safe space. Mhm. Because you really, you really can't stress that enough. Uh, actors are a fragile bunch, you know. Uh, especially, I, w- I would actually say, especially in the Amdram world. Uh, my first year at drama school, one of their main focuses there was kicking the crap out of our confidence. Yeah, uh, just making you realize that you're not a big fish anymore. Uh, and that you're going into a profession where you're going to spend most of your time being rejected and criticized. People who do it as a hobby, don't, people don't like being criticized for their hobby. You know, if someone paints a picture for you, you don't say to him, oh, well, it's not a Picasso, is it? No, you you take it and you put it up on the fridge. You know? Um, so, so a lot of people in the Amdram scene, scene they, don't, they don't like getting criticism. Which I mean, who does really? No, no, you, you, yeah. Um, I, I mean, personally, I, I do like it to a certain extent. I like constructive I was criticism. Say, I was about to say exactly that. There's a difference between just playing your shit and look. I've noticed this. What was um, one of the first shows you and I worked on together? One of the notes that you gave one of the other actors. What was it again? Sure it wasn't to you. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, I remember exactly who it was to. Uh, act better. Yeah, that's a good note. That seems to make perfect sense. How is that constructive? That, that, it holds all the necessary parts for that person to produce a better character. Yeah. Yeah. There's a difference between knowing something, like in this case, you need to act better, and understanding it. Right. I need to act better because. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's... A very big part of my directing process. Mm-hmm. I I want everyone in the cast to finish the show as better actors than they started. Yeah, yeah, yeah it seems like a yeah. Seems, so, seems like a good trade off. They're giving you their time, and they're they're offering up themselves to help create this story and this play. But if they take something away from it that pushes them forward as an actor, as you say, it seems. This beginnings of a fair trade-off between mm-hmm. you and them, or yeah. Um, okay, so then we've got, and I'm 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 literally going to quickly jump out of this rehearsal process because you did. We have before we go too deep into looking at how the play is then built from the ground up, um, and how you as a, an actor create a character, maybe you as a director create the whole play. I, I, it's probably important that we do go back to auditions and casting because you've already mentioned mm-hmm. it really quickly because it will feed into what we're talking about if if we get an understanding of how you pick the people that are playing the roles that will help us potentially understand how you're utilizing them to create the play so in terms of your auditions and your casting can you kind of give us a an overview of what I mean you already have in terms of specifics of the people you're looking for Mm -hmm. but what maybe the process through which you go through to get people 
and select the right people and and cast the show and you know i'm sure we could talk for five hours just on auditions but in your head just a kind of an overview of what that process is and why it's important or you know and, and yeah, yeah. again sorry to carry on but i've said before and on in some of the interviews like casting is 80 90 percent of of your work on the show not the physical work of bringing it to life but get that right yeah and your life down the road is just a breeze or a lot easier certainly uh so i i really enjoy the casting process it's it's probably as a director especially it's probably one of my favorite parts of putting a show together because you know if if we if we go back to the whole that whole idea of painting a picture that's that moment where you've got this blank canvas and you've got an idea of what you want to paint and you've just got all your art supplies together that's what it is it's getting them together and it's that excitement of knowing okay i'm working with these types of paint so i can make it look like this i just i love the process so um one thing one thing I will try to do is I will try and go and see as many shows in the area as possible. Okay. Because uh, purely through chance with my first foray into directing, uh, we we managed to find our lead actress because she was working on another Amdram show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we asked her to come along on audition because I was like, I was absolutely blown away by her performance. And she ended up doing the next two shows with us. And... Then she went off to drama school and is is doing fantastic things now. So I will always try to go and see a few shows before then because, you know, sometimes you'll go and see a show and you won't see anyone that you think of for a role. Not that there's no one good in it, just no one that stands out for a particular role. But on the off chance that you see someone, you know, that's that's great. That's part of your job done for you. Yeah. Uh, the audition process itself, uh, so... I tend to do two stage auditions whenever possible. First one, very simple. Uh, so most of my directing has been Shakespeare. So I'll ask everyone to prepare a Shakespeare piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have certain rules when it comes to that. So um, I'm sure as I was listening to your, your interview with Simon, he'd like this. Uh, you're not allowed to do Viola's I Left No Ring speech. It's been banned. I just I don't want to hear it anymore. Yeah, you don't, yeah. I basically know it off by heart now. Uh, I mean, it's a lovely speech, but gosh, Shakespeare really needed to write more for women. Well, write anything for women, technically. Uh, I do actually. I don't what, think he was allowed to. I think well, he, yeah. One thing I do make clear as well is uh, if any women coming to audition want to do a man's speech, I'm absolutely fine with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not so much looking for a woman to play Benedict, but it's a great speech. And if they show good understanding of it, fine, you know? Yeah. I think that's becoming more and more of a common theme, isn't it? That it doesn't, as long as, as long as the, the thing you're bringing displays your best work. Yeah. You, it's not, it doesn't really matter where it comes from. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so I'll ask them to perform that one, one thing I always tend to do as well is, uh, I, I do kind of judge them based on what speech they choose. Okay. So that's, sometimes, that's good for them to know. Yeah. Well, okay. So sometimes if they go for the really obvious speeches, it's like, all right, what you're essentially doing here is 
you're pitting yourself against the other 12 people who did that exact same speech. Mm -hmm. You're not doing yourself any favors. Yeah. Go for something more obscure because it might not be the best speech you could have chosen, but chances are it's going to be the best version of that speech they see that day, especially if it's the only version of it they see that day. The other thing, which is just, it's such a simple thing, but people, I, I guess they just don't seem to get it, is I always make it clear to the people coming and auditioning what show we're going to be doing. And the number of times I've had people come and audition for a comedy doing a tragedy speech or vice versa, I'm just like, why? Why? I'm letting you do one speech, do one that shows how good you are at comedy. It's, mm. um, I'll then give them some direction. Okay. Uh, which I think is very, very important. Like I heard other people talking about this in some of the other interviews you did. Um, I think you, you actually mentioned it as well. Someone, someone can spend hours and hours and hours working on a speech. Uh, you can do a speech to the same level, uh, say like do Hamlet to the same level as David Tennant. Um, if you're only doing that one speech and if you've been working on it for months and months and months, you know, I've got some speeches. I mentioned the, the Benedict one I used to get into drama school. I still use that one when I get the opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, fortunately, I can take direction with it. Someone can come and deliver their best Romeo. And it can be, I can, it can blow me away. Mm -hmm. But if I don't get the impression that they're able to be flexible within their Romeo, yeah, it's impossible to work with them because you offer direction during rehearsals and they come back with their Romeo again. You're like, hold on a second. We loved your Romeo, but now that we've got your Juliet next to you, part of your Romeo doesn't work anymore. We need to work out what the new interaction is going to be. You can't keep bringing me your Romeo because, it, you know, ultimately you're going to be in a different play. You'll be delivering mm -hmm. the lines and delivering, you know, a performance, but it won't marry up with whatever else is going on around you. So, I, yeah, I agree with that totally. I mean, a lot a lot depends on uh, the director because you, you and I have a similar style when it comes to our actors. We like to give our actors as much freedom as possible mm -hmm. and rein them in when we need to. So that type of actor isn't going to do well in our kind of situations because um, we are going to be making changes very late on. Yeah. And other actors are going to be making changes and we're going to be supporting them in that. And an actor who gets really stuck in their ways isn't isn't going to do well there. Um, the last bit of the audition I do is an interview section mm -hmm. in which I literally just ask the most generic questions like, do you have a car? What's your availability like? That kind of thing. Uh, and I try in that moment just to really put them at ease. I don't ask any difficult questions, really simple, matter of fact, yes or no type questions. So they don't have to think about them. They don't have to worry because that's when you get to see who they are. Mm -hmm. And if it's someone who, if I've got the time and if it's someone who was struggling earlier, once I've got them relaxed, I go and ask them to do their piece again. Uh, so yeah, that's stage one. Stage two, uh, the recalls, I usually do as a group audition. Okay. And it's mostly about finding the chemistry. Uh, it, it, and when you say group audition, you mean everyone's in the same room watching each other do their performances? Or yeah. You're, okay. yeah. Every, everyone's together. Um, I make like a day out of it, like a kind of workshop type thing. I have 
a few games and exercises to get them warmed up, to get them relaxed. Uh, I'll have some scenes that I'll ask people to do together. Um, on occasions, I've sent the scenes out beforehand mm -hmm. to give them preparation time. Uh, I'll get them to do their speeches, you know, something that they know, something that they're comfortable with. And it'll essentially be a room full of people that I would quite happily cast. I just need to know what roles they fit and who works well with each other. Mm -hmm. Like when I did when I did Romeo and Juliet, I decided very early on who I wanted as my Romeo. And I think we went through, in the recall phase, we had sort of um, one on two auditions where I had Romeo there and about half a dozen Juliets that I did come in, have to come in at different times. I didn't have them all together because, mm -hmm. you know, that would be cruel, I personally think. And literally all of them I could have cast as Juliet, but it was just about finding the right one for him. Yeah. Because I knew I wanted him as Romeo. Uh, and that one worked out pretty well. Other shows like Comedy of Errors, for example, we knew we wanted to set that in a circus. So the recall audition was, it was mostly games, to be honest. It was, right. it was mucking about. It was, it was trying to have as much fun as possible. Um, and fun that uh, as an outsider was, was fun to look in on because mm -hmm. that's the vibe that we wanted with that. Uh, recalls, I think you can't be as strict. It, a lot depends on the show mm -hmm. and who you need to cast. Because the other thing you've got to keep in mind is uh, you and I both were in a situation where we do have actors that we go to each time. Uh, and we may have already cast half the play by the time we do the recalls. Um, having those people along whenever possible is great. Because it's always nice to have people in an audition that know they've got a role and don't have to worry. You know, they can bring that level of confidence to the others. Yeah. Is there anything else in terms of casting that you're looking out for? Is it, it you know... I suppose we mentioned the kind of diva behavior and maybe people who are mm -hmm. already, you can be as good as you like, but if you're set, if you feel like you're going to be inflexible and set in your ways, it's a lot harder for a director to want to cast you. I'm just looking at things that people who go to these recalls or even the auditions should be looking out for if they want to get the role, things that they can, you know, be portraying that help a director select them. Yeah. Two things that, can absolutely ruin an audition for an actor. Arrogance and humility. And humility. Don't, yeah, don't bring them. Okay. Don't bring them. Let the director decide if you're good. Right. Don't tell them yourself. Yeah. If you go in there being too humble, let's say, then you're apologizing. Yeah. Why are you apologizing? Um, and of course, if you go in there being arrogant, no one likes arrogance. Yeah. You know, like I, I'm talking like proper cocky levels no, no, like, of arrogance. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let the let the director decide if uh, if they think you're rubbish, then you can apologize. If they think you're brilliant, then you can walk out of there with a big grin on your face. Yeah. Right. That was a that was a digression, but a necessary one in my mind to feed us back into the rehearsal process okay. and allow us to understand who we've got in the space. So. You know, we've got a better idea now of who you've cast and why you've cast them and what you've looked for and and how you've created the 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 group of people that will be bringing this place to life. We had already talked through the read through and the addition, uh, the read through and the um, 
initial parts of the rehearsal phase. So mm -hmm. we've got a rehearsal phase where we're making the room comfortable, we're making the, uh, the actors feel comfortable, allow them to be vulnerable. We're displaying it um, or we're showing them that, that it's okay to fail and to present ideas to the group that might not be right in the end, but one of them might work or a number of them might work. And you've also, you also began talking about your interactions with those you're playing opposite and how you creating relationships outside of the rehearsal space that feed back in and you're, you're kind of engendering as an actor, um, a desire to work with the people to create your character and their character to make them better, to make you better. And as a director, you mentioned kind of the idea that, that you're allowing those first, this first phase of the rehearsal process to be a bit looser. You're not, being explicit in terms of the blocking and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Once we reach a phase where, and I, I, I don't know what your cutoff is or where you begin to differentiate between sections and, and if you do or you don't, but in my mind, it's like either off book. We're off book now and this is, now we're shifting into a different mode of discovery. We've done, you know, a skeletal block of all the scenes. We know we've run all the scenes once and now you guys are off book. We're going to push through into looking at character and developing that or whether you have a different kind of cutoff point from which, well, basically I'm asking you to begin discussing this next phase of the rehearsal process where I'd like to understand from an actor's point of view how you're developing your character and and bringing it to life and as a director, how you're shaping the play, utilizing people that are coming in. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so the way I usually would structure them is we'd have a series of rehearsals where we basically work through blocking the entire play mm -hmm. in whatever order is most convenient for our actors and their schedules. Then um, I would ask them to try to come in the, the next time round that we do that scene. I would ask them to try and come in as off book as possible Okay, so, okay, that's nice. with, with some character decisions made. Right, so you're, you're giving them the opportunity to... There's some time, and then you're setting the scene up and blocking it, and then you're yeah. saying, "Right, look." But like we we'd spend like we'd spend like a good few hours on one scene. Mm -hmm. We would do exercises that you know uh, test out the characters' relationships in that scene, and and essentially send them home after every rehearsal with with all the tools they need to start building the character. Um, and they would have gone over it so many times that some of the lines would already be there they'd already they're already be stuck so yeah essentially my rehearsal schedule is start off giving them all the tools that they need then the second half of it is essentially uh essentially expecting them to have used those tools okay and doing what i can with what they give me okay so it'll vary from actor to actor yeah in terms of the ensemble piece that you're creating how are you how are you directing the smaller parts or the people that maybe have i think i asked ali this a couple of weeks ago who have less um acting ability less experience that may if if allowed to and i'm conscious of like how audiences get sucked out of a production very quickly if if something is disingenuous or something is different from what they expect but also if 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 the acting suddenly drops off and they've got someone who's not presenting a character in a fully rounded manner. How are you as a director dealing with that? 
Uh, I've I've always been a big fan of the the phrase "everyone's the hero of their own story." Okay. Uh, so when I'm working with someone who's playing a small role and or a less experienced actor, uh, I'll most likely I'll have everyone in the cast doing some form of given circumstance. Which for anyone who doesn't know, it's another Stanislavski technique. It's the idea that your character didn't come into existence the first time they walked on stage. They have a life. They have experiences. So I'll get people to start putting together their backstories, mm -hmm. their likes, their dislikes. Um, and sometimes I will ask random questions to the characters. It might be something that relates directly, like, um, you know, servant number three. What is your relationship with Juliet? Do you guys talk? You know, do you just come in and do your thing? Um, it'll be stuff that doesn't affect the play even slightly, really, like servant number seven. What's your first name? Uh, and the number of times I've had actors say servant <laughs> is it's unbelievable. Uh, but but when you get when you get that idea in in their head of oh this character has a name this character doesn't just come on and serve some wine they do have a life outside of this then they start they start to get more into the character. Uh, again, unfortunately, it's one of those things where a lot depends on how much work they're willing to put into it. Yeah. Uh, but I have seen beneficial results from it and so that tends to be my go-to okay so just putting them in a position where you're you're they may have no lines or very few lines in the play but they've got a fully rounded character and therefore they they've got work to do so they're not just turning up to rehearsals and sat around and whatever they've there's, mm -hmm. there's stuff that they're yeah okay i i also quite like um in the early stages of rehearsals having uh characters improvise scenes together Mm -hmm. um, again, I'm thinking Romeo and Juliet. There's a particular line that I always found really funny where Nurse refers to Tybalt as her best friend, even right. though we've never seen those characters interact together. Uh, so, you know, I was playing Tybalt at the time, so I improvised some stuff with Nurse of us just hanging out and chatting, and it was really, really lovely. And every time we were on stage together, even though we didn't talk to each other, there was always a, a mutual respect for one another. Right. And it's the uh, the the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern kind of thing, you know. Yeah, they've got a few scenes in Hamlet and that kind of thing, but most people know them for their spin-off. So let's improvise a few scenes where Servant Three and Servant Seven, whose whose name was Clive, um, where where they get yeah in Shakespeare's time yeah where they where they get to uh, I think I think we had them like you know backstage or not backstage but you know in another part of the the capulet house bitching about the capulets mm -hmm. and that was it was really fun and funny and it gave them a lot more character depth <laughs> <laughs>